0: All right, Daniel, will you help me? Oh, I'd love to. Thank you, I thought you would. If you do not have a Bible and you can't uh, see one on the end of the aisle, raise your hand and Daniel will give you a copy of the passage for tonight. Uh, Molly, will you help me here? Um, I also have these outlines. Aha. Hold on. I see. Just look at some of those. If they might be messed up at the, at the back end. Yes, get rid of the ones that have Galatians on them, because that's screwed up. Good. Sure, you can hand those out. Um, Okay. Yep. 125, but there may be more like 120. All right. Hey, I got one more other thing to tell you. So, um, also, a week from when? Saturday? Yeah, a week from Saturday, just you can put this on your calendar, we're going to do a thing we call questioning the faith. And um, we're also going to combine that with homemade ice cream Sundays. With. Um, yeah, and those are awesome because we'll make like those warm Ghirardelli brownies and then all kinds of ice cream and toppings. So that's going to be a week from Saturday at our house, Questioning the Faith. Let me tell you, Questioning the Faith is an opportunity to come ask questions about whatever you want. Uh, we believe that the Bible speaks to all of life. We also believe that if you're thinking, you probably have questions. And faith and thinking should always go together. So we want to have a safe space where you can come ask questions about whatever you want. Even if you don't think you have any questions, I guarantee if you come and you hear other questions, you'll realize that maybe some of those are your questions as well. So that's something we're going to do a week from Saturday. Um, You know, there are a couple things we like to do that hopefully give you a little taste of the DNA of RUF and what we think is the DNA of the way the gospel should impact Christian community. One of those uh, is in the songs that we sing. And um, it, it, I was thinking about the Psalms, there were some dreary songs in there, um, but you know, the, the fact is, when you look at the Psalms, there are more Psalms of struggle, asking where are you God, than there are songs saying God is with me and everything's awesome and I feel great today. And unfortunately, a lot of churches um, don't keep that same kind of balance. A lot of times you come into worship and you, you, you kind of get the sense that if you're not really fired up for Jesus, that maybe you don't quite fit. And then maybe you might feel like you have to pretend that you're fired up for Jesus, and that may not be really where you're at. Um, I love that hymn, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. That might be a new song to you, and it might be kind of strange. like. But it's interesting. It's a story song. It's a testimony song by the guy who wrote Amazing Grace, John Newton. And a lot of people would say that John Newton understood grace and understood the gospel, but he also understood that God is not a vending machine, and that sometimes... God actually does things for our good that we don't understand, and, um, and it's important that you find a Christian community that gets that, because otherwise you'll feel that every time life is hard, it's because you haven't trusted enough or you haven't done enough, and that is really a destructive uh, spiritual atmosphere to be in. So we sing songs like that so that you get a sense of, oh, this is like Christian community that understands struggle. Part of the normal Christian life. It's not just an indication that your faith is weak. Okay? The other song we sang at the end there, In Christ Alone, I love that one as well. Actually, I've been with the Gettys this week because they're doing a big worship conference down in Brentwood. Some of you guys went on Monday night, right? Who went to that, the hymn sing? And I'm sure that was really awesome um, because they do a great job. And so in RUF, we want to sing songs that are honest about struggle and explicit about the gospel. Because we need the gospel to become the most beautiful thing in our hearts. And um, so that's why we do what we do with that. Now, we've been going through the letter to the Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And if you've been, uh, not been with us, let me just tell you, um, the letter to the Galatians is a really great letter. It's a, it's a letter that really helps us understand the grace of the gospel. But it starts out strangely. It starts out with Paul, the Apostle Paul, being very angry. And a lot of people are like, I don't know about, you know, I know angry Christians and angry God. I'm not wanting to be part of that. But let me tell you, if you know why someone's angry, you know what they care about the most. And so actually, this letter to the Galatians is really helpful for those of us that want to figure out what was it that Christians understood in the first centuries that transformed the world, Because there are a lot of people that say, well, you think this, and this Christian thinks this, and everybody's got all these different ideas, but by studying this angry letter, you actually find out what was so important, so vital, that when it was threatened, it made the Apostle Paul angry. Anger is actually a clue or a pathway to figure out what matters the most. And as we get into this letter, what we talked about the second week, is that Paul is concerned that... These people that he loved and he had preached the good news to, and that's what that word gospel literally means, these people that he had preached the good news to, after he left and went off to other places, some other teachers came in and told these people, you don't really get the whole gospel. Paul didn't give you the whole gospel. He didn't tell you everything you need to know to be fully pleasing to God. And Paul hears about this and says, these people have tricked you. These people have actually distorted the gospel. And the word he uses there in chapter 1 is a word that means reversing the gospel. And I'll say something more about that because it comes up again in our passage tonight. But here's what you need to understand as we enter into this uh, story tonight. And it's actually a, a fairly long passage, but it all has to hang together. This is Paul telling you a story. But it's not just a story for the heck of it. It's a story so that you would understand what really matters. Now, before I tell you that, let me, just, let me just say this. Christianity has been around for 2,000 years. And a lot of people think of it as a Western European religion. But it's a matter of historical fact that the center of power... Of Christianity, where it was the most powerful and thrived the most, has actually moved around to different areas of the world over the last 2,000 years. That's actually fairly unique for a world religion. And one of the reasons that this is able to have happened is because Christianity doesn't say you have to wear certain clothes or eat certain foods. Uh, As a matter of fact, the letter to the Galatians has a lot to do with the reason that Christianity has been uh, thrived in lots of different cultural contexts and looked differently culturally in these different contexts. There's a professor at Penn State, Philip Jenkins, has a book called The Lost History of Christianity. It's actually a really great book. And he says that over the last 2,000 years, the epicenter of Christianity has moved from Israel out to the rest of the Middle East— then over to Africa, then to Europe, and then to America. And now the epicenter of Christianity is no longer the Western world. It's the Southern Hemisphere and Asia. Now, I'm a Presbyterian minister, but I have to acknowledge the fact that there are more Presbyterians in Ghana, in West Africa, than there are in America and Scotland combined. But most people don't know that. As a matter of fact, what um, Philip Jenkins, professor at Penn State, says, in modern times, we're accustomed to thinking of Christianity as traditionally based in Europe and North America, but the particular shape of Christianity with which we are familiar is a radical departure from what was for well over a millennium the historic norm. Another earlier global Christianity once existed. For most of its history, Christianity was a tri-continental religion with powerful representation in Europe, Africa, and Asia. And this was true into the 14th century. Christianity became predominantly European, not because the European continent had any obvious affinity for the faith, but by default, Europe was the continent where it was not destroyed. Now that's important to understand, because I think a lot of people... Think of Christianity as a particularly Western thing. And in our day and age, when we're more aware than ever before of the differences of people in all kinds of cultures, you may wonder what relevance Christianity has to that kind of world. The fact is, the letter of Galatians tells us. And the reason that Christianity was able to thrive all over the world is because of what happened here in Galatians. Pretty fascinating thing. So let's read about the story, and then I'll try to explain this. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul begins this story. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and remained with him fifteen days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. I'm going to talk about why he's getting so agitated in a minute. He says, then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith. He once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, and he means them, he means the, head, the kind of the main apostles, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running. Or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek, yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential. What they were makes no difference to me because God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas, remember that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave me the right hand of fellowship. Sorry, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now, this is uh, long and somewhat convoluted, isn't it? But I'm going to try, and you might wonder, like, man, you know, papyrus in the ancient world was expensive, And he spends all this time, like a third of the letter almost, telling this story. Why? What's going on here? Well, it's important to remember that in the various earliest days of Christianity, the Christian church was almost completely people who were Jewish culturally. Okay? The church in its earliest days was almost completely Jewish. And the early Christians, we see in the book of Acts, practiced their faith while also retaining Jewish cultural and religious practices, things like circumcision, even things like going to the temple and observing these laws that mark them out as ceremonially clean, things about eating and washing and all this kind of stuff, okay? But even in that early Christian church that was Jewish, even in the earliest days, there were actually two groups of Jewish Christians among that that bigger group. And it's important to know this. There was one group that thought that, okay, we're Jewish culturally, but it's no big deal. It just happens to be our culture. And there was another group who felt like, no, our culture is superior to every other culture. Now the thing is, as long as everybody was Jewish and everybody was following these cultural norms, there was no conflict. But when Paul started to preach to the Gentiles. And actually, it was Peter who first brought the gospel to the Gentiles. But it was hard for him to do that. In Acts chapter 8, you can read about this. It took God giving him a vision and saying, go preach the gospel to these Gentiles. And then this guy comes from Cornelius' house and says, come preach to us. And Peter goes, and he's still a little bewildered. And the gospel comes to them, and the Holy Spirit falls on these people, and he can't really deny it. And he goes back to the rest of the apostles in Acts chapter 9 and says the gospel came to these Gentiles and the spirit fell on them the way it did it on us Jews on the day of Pentecost and the other disciples are like, okay, well it seems then God has granted or God has gifted the Gentiles with repentance unto life. But it still was difficult for a lot of these Jewish believers to really believe that Gentiles who didn't follow Jewish cultural practices could be just as pleasing to God, just as beautiful in his sight. And I don't think that's something that's completely disappeared from the church. Often you find different groups within a church who think they're superior to other groups, right? So this is a very relevant situation to us. But you've got to understand, when Paul begins preaching to these Gentiles, And then he tells the Gentiles, you don't have to become Jewish culturally to be fully pleasing to God. That group of Jewish believers that believed that Judaism as a culture was superior went nuts. And they literally began to follow Paul around. And after he would be done preaching, they would stir up all kinds of trouble. They accused him of doing two things. They said, Paul is subtracting vital parts of the gospel Because while he's teaching you that you need to put your faith in Jesus, he's not teaching you that you also need to obey all these laws that God has given. Like God didn't tell us how to eat and how to dress for nothing. We should do that still. And if you want to be a real Christian, really pleasing to God, you need to be circumcised and obey all of these laws. The other thing they said is, it's no wonder that Paul got it a little wrong. He's kind of a second-generation guy. He wasn't there with us from the very beginning. If he really knew James and John and Peter like we do, well, then he'd get it right. So they're basically accusing Paul of of subtracting vital parts from the gospel, and these people are claiming we're the ones who really know James and Peter and John, and Paul has got like a derivative gospel from them. But we've come directly from the apostles, the pillars, the pillars. These three guys were considered the pillars. We've come from the pillars to tell you, Galatians, that Paul kind of got some things wrong. That's what's going on. And these people, we call them the Judaizers. The Judaizers are these people that feel that you need to become Jewish culturally to be fully pleasing to God. They were effective. They were effective. And they were effective for a couple reasons, one of which we're going to talk more about next week. But the, the verses right after where I stopped talk about Peter's hypocrisy. Even though Peter was the one that God used to preach the gospel to people who weren't Jewish, after a while he kind of shrank back and started not treating Gentile believers like they were on the same level with Jewish believers. And Paul had to oppose him to his face. And say you're undoing the gospel by the way you live. And that's something that can happen. You can be in a church where people are saying all the right things, but the way they're treating people is actually undoing the gospel. But then more on that next week. The other reason that they were effective wasn't just Peter's hypocrisy, but the fact that Paul had went to Jerusalem a couple times. And so this bolstered the claim of these Judaizers that Paul got his gospel from the pillars. He didn't get it from God, and he got it wrong, but now we've come from the pillars to straighten everything out, okay? And Paul did go up to Jerusalem, but he has to straighten things out, and so that's what he's doing here. And so what I'm going to show you now is we're going to talk about this and why this whole story matters, is Paul needs to set the record straight with regard to his authority, and he needs to set the record straight with regard to who really preaches the true gospel, And these things matter. So let's look at the first thing. When it comes to his authority, Paul wants to make sure you understand this point. Only a divine revelation can explain his conversion. This is where we start out here in in verse 11. Paul is really uh, wanting to argue this in a number of ways. And the first thing he says is, look at my background. Remember my background? Like, there's no other explanation for how I'm a Christian except that God stepped in and intervened. I was not dissatisfied with Judaism. I wasn't looking for anything. I didn't have like an empty ache in my heart. I was happy, and I was persecuting the church, and I was zealous, and I was succeeding beyond other Jews of my own age. Everything was going Great and something happened, and look at the way he describes what happened it's in verse um, in verse uh, fifteen I think it is hold on. I pulled the wrong page over here. Um, here it is in in verse fifteen he says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son to me. So let's look at this for a second. Now, what's fascinating about this is that Paul was a Pharisee. Have you heard the term Pharisee? Now, if you've been around Christian circles or you've heard the Bible much, you think Pharisees are the bad guys. In Jesus' day, Pharisees were not the bad guys. Pharisees were the only people that weren't compromising with the Romans. The Pharisees were the heroes of the people. The Pharisees were the ones that really cared about God and His holiness and about His law. And they weren't compromising with the invaded army that occupied Israel, which were the Romans. And Paul was a Pharisee. The word Pharisee literally means set apart ones. The Pharisees were the ones who set themselves apart and said, We are going to have a zeal for God's word and God's law and God's holiness and set ourselves apart from all these other compromising believers. Have you ever known Christians like that? We're the holy ones, and all these other Christians are kind of slackers and compromisers, but we're the truly holy ones who set ourselves apart. Well, what does Paul say? He literally turns that upside down, doesn't he? He says, I came to understand, I thought I was a set-apart one, and then God broke in because he had set me apart. When? Before I was born. Do you see how this is so vital to understanding the true gospel? Paul is saying, in my zeal, I had set myself apart, but God actually had set me apart before I was born, before I could do anything good, before I could want to do anything good. God didn't look at me and say, oh, here's somebody, great, I can use him. I know there's some rough edges, but I can fix that. Especially if he yields himself to me and lets me flow through him like an empty vessel. Everything will be great. That's not it at all, is it? Paul says, he who set me apart before I was born, before I could do anything to impress him. And then what else did he do? He set me apart and called me by his grace Was pleased to reveal his son to me. You see how, this is what Paul says. This is what conversion is. God set me apart before I was born, before I did anything. Called me by his grace. Wooed me by his gospel, by this good news. He was pleased to reveal to me, to open my eyes. This is what happened. The only way to explain who I've become, is by God's grace. Paul's understanding of how you relate to God has been completely turned upside down. That's what conversion does. The gospel is a revelation that God makes dead people alive. It's not something we discover or something we invent. It's something that discovers us and apprehends us he goes on the gospel the gospel did everything and after my conversion i didn't go to jerusalem i went to arabia and damascus why does he mention that because it proves he was preaching the gospel the good news before he ever met any of the other apostles and then he says i did go up to jerusalem three years later But only briefly. And this is to show that he's not Peter's disciple. He's not Peter's disciple. After he got a revelation, he went out and he studied the scriptures with this new key. He comes to understand that God actually wants to make one new man out of Jews and Gentiles, these people that hated one another. He describes this in the letter to the Ephesians. He says this mystery which was hidden but has now been revealed is that God has always intended to make one new humanity by his grace to reconcile sinful men and women to himself and in so doing reconcile Jews and Gentiles who hate each other to one another. God's kingdom calling is bigger than just saving individual souls from hell. It's about making a whole new humanity. Literally in the early days of Christianity, Christians were regarded as a third race. You had Jews, you had Gentiles, and then you had Christians that just didn't fit those categories. And they literally called them the third race. That's what Paul is saying, I came to understand. And I didn't get that from Peter I'm not his disciple but then 14 years later he does go up to Jerusalem and meet with the apostles why and he uses this phrase he says to to see to make sure that I had not run my race in vain and you read that and you may think oh wait a sec so it sounds like he's become unsure and he wants to go make sure that he got it right that's actually not what he's saying what he's saying is I wanted to make sure that all of this work I'd been doing would not all come to nothing because the other apostles had lost the true gospel. Because I keep hearing about these Judaizers who say they've come from Peter, James, and John who are telling me that I've got everything wrong. I know I don't have it wrong because God revealed it to me. And I've searched the scriptures, and it keeps confirming over and over and over again that God relates to people by grace and not by what they do to set themselves apart. But sometimes I hear things that makes me wonder if Peter and James and John are holding on to this vital truth. So I better go up there. So he goes up there, and they talk about it. And he's nervous about this. He's nervous because it's a huge moment. It's the only time we know of when peter, james, john and paul all met together and the stakes were huge if the judaizers who were deceiving all these people had deceived the pillars of the church it would do serious damage to the spread of the gospel and there was reason to worry because the the, the jewish apostles in jerusalem at times struggled again Peter's hypocrisy had already happened when Paul is writing this letter. So he's already seen an example of Peter, the one who God used to say Gentiles matter to God, had kind of shrunk back and sort of denied it by the way he was living, saying, I can't, I can't sit at a table with you Gentiles because you're not really clean. I'm just going to hang out with the Jews. So even though he was saying the gospel, what he was doing was undermining the gospel. So that's what was going on. Why does this matter today? The reason this matters today is because God's people still get confused about the gospel and about cultural matters. See, the culture you've been raised in brings lots of assumptions. But God calls his people to think through these cultural assumptions and to lay them down for the sake of the gospel. But it's not easy to do. It's worth thinking about, what are the things that you just kind of assume go along with Christianity that may actually not be part of biblical Christianity? I had actually an interesting conversation today about this. I was talking uh, at this worship conference uh, down at Brentwood Baptist. And um, somebody at the seminar that I was at, I was on a panel, okay, And somebody talked about the word of God being transcultural. And I know what they meant. They meant it's kind of above just being like a particular cultural expression. But it bothered me. And it bothered me because as I looked out in the the group that was in this meeting, a couple hundred people, I saw people with different skin colors than the people that were up on the panel. And I thought, how does that sound? That's such a majority culture way of talking. To say that culture doesn't matter or that the Bible is transcultural. And I thought, it's kind of like, it's hard for me to understand that perspective. You know why? Because when you go to seminary, you have to learn Greek and Hebrew. Do you know why? Because God spoke his word in particular cultures, Hebrew and Greek. And you study things like the cultural context of the Bible, the Bible is not transcultural. It's not sort of just limited to one cultural expression, but it comes through particular cultures. Even Jesus was not an ah cultural man, he was a Jewish man born in a particular time in a particular place because God actually cares about particular places and particular cultures. And so I, I, after this little seminar, and I didn't say all that in the seminar because it would have been really awkward, um, I pushed back a little bit and I, I, I did talk, because later somebody made this statement well, you know, if we're preaching the Word of God, then worship style doesn't matter. And I was like, hold on. Like, worship style does matter because it's actually one of the ways that you love your neighbors. And the only people that think worship style doesn't matter are people that are part of the dominant culture that think everybody just needs to worship like them. Those are the ones who don't think worship style matters. But for people that aren't part of that, they feel very differently, and they should. So I go uh, sit down to lunch, and I meet these two old African pastors, both in their 60s. It was awesome to get to meet these guys and talk with these guys. And I said, what do you guys think about this thing that was just spoke at this seminar I was at? And the, and the one pastor, he did this great thing. I, I said, I'm trying to be gracious. I know that they meant to hold the word up high. And I have a high view of the word of God. And he said, yes. They hold the word up high. They lift it up high. And then it goes right over the cliff. Because they've denied something very important. Which is culture matters. Actually, one of the heresies that the letter of the Galatians is written to oppose is that there is a pure cultural expression of the gospel. If there was one pure cultural expression of the gospel, Judaism would be it. After all, you have God speaking, telling people, here's how to eat, here's how to dress. But Jesus comes and he says all of those clean laws, all of those things that mark you out as a distinct culture were pointing to me and how I was going to bring the true cleansing, the true setting you apart as my people was no longer going to be about what you eat and what you wear. It's now going to be about the way you live. And of course, it was always supposed to be that way. Even the Ten Commandments were to show you how the gospel gets so rooted into a community it helps you live in a countercultural way. And Jesus says, you know, by what he's done in his sacrifice on the cross, he made all foods clean. Right? And you need to understand that. So what assumptions do we have about church or music or dress that need to be examined? I've known people... To go to churches where pastors literally told them they need to dress up to be at church. Now, do, does it matter like what you wear? Well, you should think about it. But God doesn't say you need to wear this or that so that you can be truly pleasing to Him. I, I've, I've had, you know, some of the music we do in Ruf we've recorded on CDs, and I've gotten really angry letters and emails from people saying, you know, I just think like you can't do like rock and roll and be fully pleasing to God. Uh, there's a guy, you know, years ago wrote a little essay uh, on why the rock beat is evil in any form. <laughs> and, it, and it basically, yeah, it's this guy, Bill Gothard, and if, if you've ever been exposed to that, we should meet for coffee, because um, I'm sure it's messed you up. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, and it basically, here, here's what he said, you know, the, the rock beat is evil because it comes from Africa, and everything from Africa we know is like dark and pagan, and then the other eight reasons are your parents don't like it, and you should submit to your parents real helpful. So that kind of garbage, that kind of garbage goes on in the Christian church. It really does. It really does. Some of you can laugh, but some of you have felt that kind of stuff. I know it. I know some of you've been exposed to that kind of cultural elitism and those sort of things that are such a denial of the gospel. These things really matter. So when I was getting attacked for singing hymns to rock music, what's interesting is in the Presbyterian Church of America, which I'm ordained in that Denomination. We have maybe 2,000 pastors and maybe 50 of them are African American. Okay? It's a pretty white denomination. And I had a bunch of those guys emailing me privately saying, this is a fight, this fight over rock and roll is a fight worth having because if they won't accept you, how in the world are they ever going to accept us? In other words, do we make people feel like to be fully pleasing to God, you need to worship like 17th century Scottish people? Sometimes we would never say that, but we imply that. Or do we make people feel like they need to worship like 21st century college students to be fully pleasing to God? Worship style does matter because it's about loving your neighbor. Okay? And there's more I could say about that. But culture matters. All right. The second thing he wants to to set the record straight up is about the gospel. and This will be much shorter, but it's really important. Are the Judaizers right in telling Christians you need to practice circumcision and obey the clean laws? Now, most everybody here is like, well, no, that's ridiculous. Um, But in Paul's day, it wasn't so clear cut. But why is Paul opposed to it? That's the important thing. The reason he's opposed to it is because, like we said last week, it reverses the order of the gospel. Jesus plus nothing is the true gospel formula. Paul used to trust in his culture, his obedience. He's been there, done that. But when he goes to the other disciples and lays out, this is what I'm preaching. Are you guys still on board with this? He's thrilled. And you know why he says? In in verse 6, chapter 2, he says, I was thrilled because they added nothing to my message. To add something to the good news that Jesus lived and died in the place of sinners, to add something that you have to do that qualifies you to be part of that is to undo the gospel. Jesus plus something will always lead to fear. Here's why. If you think it's Jesus plus your faith, your sincerity, your best efforts to please him, Equals salvation? Salvation is always a variable. You know why? I, I hadn't studied much math, but I know this. Because you're a constant variable. So if you have Jesus, who's unchanging, plus you, the variable, equals a variable. The only thing that leads to salvation without a variable is Jesus plus nothing. And that's the true gospel. Jesus plus nothing. Jesus sets you apart before you're born, reveals himself to you, changes your heart of stone to a heart of flesh, and woos you. Faith is the first cry of the newborn baby Christian. It's not the thing that causes you to be born again. Now, that doesn't mean that you don't trust in Jesus, but what happens is once you come to faith in Christ, you realize He was the one that opened my eyes. Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, put it so well. He said, if I find faith growing in my heart, I know that someone must have planted it there because faith is not native to the soil of the human heart. That's the true gospel. And that's actually the gospel that sets you free to worship and glorify God alone. Not to say, well, God, you and me, we make a good team. I did my part, you do your part. So you better not ask me to do too much for you, because after all, I did you a favor by letting you, you know, into my heart. That's so foreign to the way the Bible argues. The Bible is, you are not your own, you've been bought with a price, therefore honor God with your body. God claims allegiance over everything you are and everything you will do because he did everything for you. That's the only way the gospel works. way I'd like to say it is, you don't have to clean up for Jesus to marry you. You don't need to put on a fancy dress for Jesus to love you. I love to do weddings, but I always like to tell people, you know, you don't wear white today because of what you've done. You wear white, we dress up in our best clothes to honor who God has made us and who he's making us to be. Because listen, you can't possibly like put on your best clothes, go all through all this big rigmarole ceremony to try and pump your heart up to such a level of excitement and emotional engagement that you can live with another sinner for the rest of your life. No day can do that. But you celebrate a wedding, the promises of God that even as you make vows, you hear him making vows to you that he will love you for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. And he won't just love you until death parts you. His love was actually sealed by death. Therefore, not even death can undo it. That's the only way you're ever going to enter into a relationship with another sinner. Because you don't know what the future holds. But you know the one who holds the future. And he's the one who lived and died in your place. That's the true gospel. You don't have to make yourself beautiful For Jesus to marry you. Romans chapter 5 says. While we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. That's what's so astonishing. About the gospel. Now, what's this little thing about Titus. And circumcision. There are always people. Who are a little nervous. With how good the gospel is. Always. And so Titus you see. Is not Jewish. So when, Peter, when Paul takes him up to the other apostles, they don't say, oh, Titus, to be pleasing to God, you need to be circumcised. Now, you would think if Paul likes Titus that he wouldn't want him to be circumcised because that's not something anybody wants to go through as an adult. Even little babies, like, nobody wants to go through this. But that's not what Paul says. Like, I wasn't going to do that to my friend. I wasn't going to let them do that to my friend. That's not what he says. He says, I had to oppose These false brothers who had spied in to undermine or to undo our freedom in Christ. Like, this is huge. I don't know how if you've ever heard any sermons on freedom in Christ, Christian liberty. But Paul says, the gospel is at stake. The gospel is at stake. If you think that you have to do something to make God pleased with you... The gospel itself is at stake. And I had to oppose these people to their face for you, for your good. That's a pretty fascinating thing. I think sometimes we think that the gospel and believing the gospel is just about us and our own comfort. But Paul actually shows us here at the end of this passage that your believing the gospel actually helps the people you're in community with. Have you ever thought about that? That one of the ways you love other people is to boldly trust in Christ and to refuse to live in fear because it's so difficult for people to believe that Jesus is enough. And you need people in your life who boldly believe it. How do you get those people? Well, you pray for the people you already have. You already have people that can be like this, but they need your help. They need your encouragement. They need your prayers that they would believe the gospel boldly. Right? Do you see this? You need believers who really believe the gospel. Where are you going to find them? Well, with the weak believers that struggle with the gospel that are all around you. So start praying for each other. Start encouraging one another for the good of the community. So that we can, again, go out into the world and say to the world, I don't believe your lies anymore. You need brothers and sisters like that. We have brothers and sisters who are weak. But we can encourage one another in the gospel. We can stand boldly for the gospel because it really matters. And next week, we're going to look at Peter and Paul getting in his face. I know a lot of people don't think that love means getting in people's face. But who in your life, I'll I'll leave you with this as you think about this, who in your life can deliver a life-giving rebuke saying you're not living in line with the truth of the gospel? Are you the kind of person who could do that for others? Is the gospel more important than your own comfort or than being well-liked by everybody? It's worth thinking about, and we're going to look at that next week. Why does Paul oppose Peter to his face, and why does that matter? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we do thank you that we have a great need for Jesus, and that we have a great Jesus for our need, as Spurgeon used to say. Lord, we thank you that the Apostle Paul was so convinced of the goodness of Jesus plus nothing that he didn't back down. We pray, Lord that we could also honor your gospel either by coming to believe it tonight or by encouraging one another with it, by praying for one another that we would believe Jesus plus nothing is enough. Lord, forgive us for the ways that we think too lightly of what you've done and think that we need to add to it, think that we need to supplement it Lord, help us to boldly trust the gospel of grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing this uh, doxology. It's a good reminder of the gospel of grace. And who gets the credit? Praise God, from whom all blessings flow.